rubbing elbows Getting closer to the stars Rubbing elbows You don't have to listen from afar Close as a whisper As clear as day Rubbing elbows Rubbing elbows Rubbing elbows As the music plays
Are you ready to get some exclusive behind the scenes stories about some of music's biggest name songwriters and artists? Well, we have good news for you. You are there. That's right. You are there. Rubbing Elbows is your VIP ticket to this experience. Our host, Don Ellis Gatlin, has rubbed elbows with some of the biggest named artists on the planet. He knows things about these artists that they may not even know about themselves or remember. All you have to do is sit back, relax, and get ready to enjoy the conversation and music as you are our guest on the proverbial green room of podcasts, Rubbing Elbows. And now, Don, the show is yours. Everybody out there, it's time for another episode of Rubbing Elbows with Don L. Scatlin. That's me. I've got amazing Mark and Raymond helping me out today, but we have an amazing special guest, and that's Mr. Bruce Bouton. Hey, Bruce. Hey, Don. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good. Are you? Uh, were you working today, doing a, a session this morning or anything like that? Uh, I'm actually... Had an interview with some guy this morning doing something, and I uh, practiced and I went to yoga, something no old steel players ever said, and um, came home and made lunch, and now I'm talking to you. So big productive well, day so far. See, so you just said old though. Like I, to me, you're not old at all. You're right in the thick of things. You're you're still playing as great as ever, and you're doing incredible things. You just went out on the road, I think, not too long ago with Mr. Garth Brooks, actually playing. Live, uh, you did. A, didn't you do a couple shows with Garth? Yeah, I did his. Uh, I did his last stadium uh, show. Uh, his uh, longtime steel player Steve McClure couldn't make the show, so I went out and subbed for him. It was a pretty small crowd. I think it was only about eighty-four thousand people, but it was pretty. It was big enough. Did you say I, I small of- crowd? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's it's interesting, man. <laughs> he's a he's a phenomena. He's a, never seen anything like it. Well, you were there from uh, pretty much day one um, playing yes, us. And how how that whole connection all, all happened? How that how that it come together? It's kind of a funny connection to tell you the truth, because I was uh, um, I was trying to um, trying to be a session player. Um, I was still working on the road with Mel Tillis, I think. I'd left Ricky Skaggs, where I'd actually cut a bunch of records with Ricky. But um, but I came back to town and realized <laughs> that I wasn't ready to do sessions yet. You know, I, I mean, I was just – and so I had to take another road job. So I was out with Mel Tillis. But in the meantime, I was home one time. And, um, you, you know, I had met this girl named Kathy Matea uh, in the laundromat. Um and it was just her and I. There was this all-night laundromat over on Blair Boulevard in Nashville. And we started talking. I said, so what do you do? And she says, well, I'm a singer. What do you do? And I said, well, I'm a steel player. She said, you playing with anybody? And I actually, to go back, I was playing with Ricky Skaggs at the time. And I said, um, I said, yeah, I play with Ricky Skaggs. And it was common knowledge around town that we were the same band on those records that toured with them, you know, which was pretty unheard of back then. It was always studio guys and road guys. And she said, you know, I love your plan. If I ever get a record deal, I'm going to call you. So a couple of years later, I guess it was around 86, um, I get a call from the legendary producer, Alan Reynolds. And he's, he talks very quiet. He's very calm, calm, gentle man. He says, 
I'm Bruce. Uh, this is Alan Reynolds, uh, Kathy Matea. I'm producing Kathy, and I would like um, to see if you want to come in and overdub on one of her records. And I was thrilled. So I was I was up in Canada with Mel Tillis, and so I, there was no way I was going to get home on the bus, you know. So I actually took what little money I had left, and I bought a plane ticket, and uh, and flew home from um, as soon as I got in the states. I think I was in. Um, Michigan or someplace, I don't know. And I flew home and went into the session and we cut a song called 18 Wheels and a Dozen Ropes. And it became her first number one record. 18 wheels and a dozen roses Ten more miles on his four-day run A few more songs later I got a call from Alan again and he said hey I'm, I'm uh, cutting this guy named Garth Brooks uh, he just got signed to Capitol Records would you like to come in and overdub on a couple songs and I walked in and the first song I played on was a song called Much Too Young to Be This uh, Damn Old and <laughs> you, the rest you just named two country music classics 18 Wheels Absolute Guys you know that song It's it was uh, I think it was nominated for Song of the Year Pretty I sure. think it won. Yeah, it, did, it, it definitely won the CMA Song of the Year. I don't know if it what happened in the Grammys, but you know, just that's an award show. But Bruce, don't you think that was uh, absolutely incredible uh, creative period in Nashville? That uh, mid '80s to early, like beginning of the '90s, 
thought that was a wonderful time for the uh, for just a very diverse from you know from Ricky Ben Shelton to Dwight Yoakam to Randy Travis to Garth Brooks to Kathy Matea. It seemed to be a really uh, wonderful creative period in Nashville. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, keep in mind when um, in 1980. When I had the opportunity to audition for Ricky Skaggs, he came over to my house with an acoustic guitar and went through the whole first Waiting for the Sun to Shine album with me. I almost didn't join his band because it was so country. And the stuff you were hearing on the radio was like T.G. Shepard and Janie Fricky and the Urban Cowboy stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was working with a girl named Lacey J. Dalton at the time who was, you know, she hadn't had any... She was having a hard time getting hits, but we were touring and doing every TV show in America and everything else. And But I joined Ricky's band and it blew up. I mean, back then, very few country artists sold gold records. You know, Kenny Rogers did, Willie Nelson did, you know, the Outlaws. Uh, Dolly Parton hadn't hadn't gotten huge yet. She hadn't, I don't think she'd had a gold record. But, you know, all those acts like Barbara Mandrell and, and, and Ronnie McDowell and all those guys, they didn't sell. You know, they might sell 100,000 records, two, maybe right. 200,000. Uh, it was all based on radio hits and publishing, you know. but um, And pop they, crossover, Bruce. Uh, that's why Kenny was so big, because Kenny would have well, well, all, his, all his hits for pop hits and country hits. So he had that whole mass audience. Well, he did. But then Kenny Rogers came out of the first edition. I mean, back when I was, you know, in elementary school and the first edition came out. Right. Kenny, Kenny was an anomaly, but... Um, other than that, and so all of a sudden, Ricky Skaggs cuts this pure bluegrassy country record with fiddles and steels and, and real high, you know, and high harmonies and all this stuff. And it blew up. And well, Yeah, that's my point, that, that, that Ricky was doing country music. He wasn't trying to have pop hits. All these other yeah, artists but, you named not, were... Nobody, were had, nobody else was trying to have pop hits either. I mean, Mandrell and T.G. Shepard and country music just didn't sell. Period. I mean, that was the point. And then what happened is uh, is Ricky started blowing up and then Jimmy Bowen came to town and Bowen, uh, you know, he he got over to MCA and he put that team together with uh, uh, Emery Gordy and, and, and Tony Brown. And Tony Brown came out of the whole Emmy Lou Harris, Rodney Crowell, Roseanne camp. So the first thing. Tony did was signed Steve Earle and Lyle Lovett and um, Nancy Griffin and um, Patty Lovett. That was his first signing. And, you know, all of a sudden you're hearing Guitar Town on that. Right. Now you're hearing that on the radio. And then Rodney, you know, comes out. And then Foster and Lloyd, you know, comes out on RCA. And it's just all these unique acts. And, and I know I'm, mar- I'm, I'm, I'm just echoing what you said. It was an amazing time. And then, um, you, you also know. played with Foster and Lloyd. Talk about uh, another great act. You you, you played yeah. on their music and uh, also. Yes, I did. I actually, I, I was getting ready to move to Australia and Bill and Rodney called me up and said, hey, Joe Galani likes our songs because he helped us put a band together. And we they got signed the night of the showcase. And um, I think about two weeks later, we were in there cutting crazy over you.
Australia, but it was like, you know, um, it was just a great convergence of style, and it was right before country videos, so nobody cared if if KT Oslin was almost fifty years old or that <laughs> that Mary Chapin Carpenter wasn't a beauty queen, but she was incredibly talented, or that Kathy Mateo was a lanky brunette hippie chick from West Virginia. I mean, or you know, just all around the thing, nobody. All people wanted was the music. Right. And um, it just, it was a glorious time, except for the fact that Nashville pulled their usual, which was uh, when Garth Brooks started blowing up, for instance, instead of sitting there and going, man, you know, here's a guy that's singing songs. He's kind of like a country version of Jim Croce. Um, people are going crazy over him. Why don't we find more acts, more singer-songwriters. Because at the time in pop music, it was like grunge and um, and rap were the biggest, you know, big, biggest things um, that were going on. You know, um, there wasn't, pop music was really pretty weird right then. So all these people were coming over 
to country, you know, Dixie Chicks, Garth Brooks, all these people. And um, I guess Dixie Chicks might have come later, but Nashville started signing every act in a cowboy hat that they could find. Right. You know, and and except so me, Bruce, except me. Well, you didn't I, wear a I, hat. I, I, I had a mullet when I was from Pittsburgh. And I, I think that was my problem. Yeah, you messed up, but um, that's all right. Um, <laughs> you, you, it's, you still came out all right, you know, so it was, uh, <laughs> but it was like, uh, you know, there was, it was just, but it was crazy because country suddenly went from being this little niche, um, you know, uh, uh, genre to just becoming huge, you know, and we were selling, we were, everybody was selling a million records, putting albums out, you know, yeah. it was bizarre. And it led to this incredible uh, 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 publishing boom, you know, where where all these companies could sign writers. And then all the writers were able to do demo sessions. This was like early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And they were all able to book demo sessions. So it's no exaggeration to say that on a Monday morning in Nashville in 1992, there'd be 25 or 30 sessions going on with five or six musicians on the sessions. And basically, um, that became a farm team for all these great musicians because you, if you were what I would call what, what I thought I was, even though I played on some records, but a B level musician could. I disagree. I'm disagreeing with well, anyway, that. I, 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 disagree I, worked, with that. I, worked, I, I threw the line out there. I was fishing for a compliment and I got it. Thank you so much. Well, I never heard anybody ever say that about you, Bruce. <laughs> you're, uh, you're, anyway. uh, uh, guys, uh, uh, Bruce, I promise you, is it called? He's in the A team. I promise you. Oh, what I he's saw, saying is being humble. He's always been the A team. I saw him at the Rutgers room with Jazz. He's a, he's look at him. He's a fishing sob. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, actually, I think it's. I think what Bruce is is he's humble. I think that. I think that's. Uh, I think that's what uh, you hear. That you can hear that in someone's playing. And they don't get ahead of themselves. I'm going to uh, kindly estimate Bruce has uh, played on over 350 million record sales. And, and so that's no B team. <laughs> well, I don't know how many, I don't know if it's that much, but you got to keep, keep in mind there was a ringer in there. I mean, nobody ever knew that Garth Brooks would sell 80 million records or however, or that Shania would sell 50 million records. Yeah, that, yeah that's another ringer, Bruce. <laughs> or how about Brooks and Dunn? How about you really? played on the on the the album that broke my heart because my brother and I are, were working on our first album with Sony and um, I said man we got this duo thing real good the Judds are retiring and uh, Sweethearts of Rodeo are doing okay but not really making a big impact Foster and Lloyd I absolutely love but they're having trouble on radio a little bit because uh, their stuff is almost almost too good for school and uh, I'm thinking man we, we, my brother and I have a great shot and here comes brand new man. And I, I just, I was, I loved the record so much, but at the same time, I'm going, oh my God, this is freaking great. Ronnie Dunn is one of the best singers I've heard since Merle Haggard. I'm, and then the band, I mean, the tracks, Bruce, come on. I mean, take Garth Brooks out of the, you know, the, out of the Brooks and Dunn alone, the music you played with your, with your bandmates on that were is second to none. Well, that was a great, thank you. That was a, an incredible opportunity. And I was so, Glad to be able to play with those guys, but it was funny how that band came together. And once again, it was just a lot of circumstance. Um, 
was a songwriter named Don Cook who worked at Tree Studios, and he had written some songs for uh, T.G. Shepard and Lee Greenwood and different people. He was getting cuts, and he called me up one day and said, "Hey, man, it's Don Cook. I'm um, I'm thinking of producing some sides on Kicks Brooks. We're going to see if we can get him another record deal. And you want to play? I've got." And he he pulled out some guys that were currently demo guys at the time, Glenn Wharf and Brent Mason. Um, they were, wow. they were like me. They were kind of just kind of working their way up. I don't think Brent had played on a hit record yet. And wow. then he bought, he bought in a couple ringers like, um, uh, Mark Cass Stevens and John Jarvis. And then he bought in another guy, a drummer named Monty Wilson, who'd never played on a hit record. And, um, Lonnie was just a demo guy too. We were all the guys that were doing demos at Tree and, 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 uh, uh, Pierre and these different publishing houses. And then he bought Rob Hajakis in, who Rob is an old friend of mine from Virginia, a fiddle player, just legendary, wrote so many hooks. And we walked in and literally we're sitting there and Kicks is in the studio and the door opens and in walks Tim Dubois, who had just started Heirs to Records. And he's and Scott Hendricks, who Tim and Scott, before Tim started, got with Heirs to, um, created a band called Restless Heart. And they had this big, tall guy coming behind him named Ronnie Dunn. And he walked into the room and they said, boys, this is, we're going to try this. It's going to be a duo. And Ronnie pulled out a cassette tape and it had Neon Moon and Boot Scoot Boogie uh, on it. Which he wrote. Yeah, he wrote it by himself. And um, the rest was history. We worked all winter long on that project and um, it hit and... uh, that particular band stayed employed, you know, pretty well with just Don Cook for the next five years. I mean, that was a huge account. And I got to I got to listen to, to you know, John Jarvis, you know, John left for a while and Dennis Burnside played keys. But being able to work with somebody like John Jarvis and Brent Mason and Glenn, man, I mean, Glenn just Glenn became the most in-demand bass player in Nashville after that record. Lonnie. Wilson, what, what, what happened on that record was it was all people who just had passion but had, didn't have any track records. So the engineer was a guy named Mike Bradley. He was the demo engineer over at Tree. And he'd worked with Buddy Kill and Summit Sound, Sound Shop and maybe done a few Ronnie McDowell records or something, maybe second engineer. But he's sitting there going, and how come none of these records, these country records, have the bass and drums turned up to where you can hear them? So he jacked the he jacked the bass and drums up on the wow. track. Did I know that? And he had a kick drum sound that was second to none. And I know a couple really famous engineers, young engineers now, that basically one in particular who said, "Man, if I could only get that kick drum sound that Mike Bradley gets." And I said, "Well, let's call him up." And we called Mike, and Mike told the guy exactly how to get that sound. And that guy uses that sound on all his mixes. <laughs> The record, put that record on right now, put Brand New Man on, and actually the albums, the, the four or five albums after that, that you guys were on, uh, it sounds just as great today. In fact, I just listened to it yesterday, so I know that's true. Well, I played on I played on the first four Brooks and Dunn records. I thought I only did the first three. I'm born to love again. I'm a brand new Oh, how I used to roam. I 
to have a wild side They say a country mile wide I'd burn those beer joints down That's all changed now You turn my life around Oh, I saw the light I've been baptized by the fire in your touch And the flame in your eyes I'm born to love again I'm a friend typical Nashville fashion, they change bands. So, um, but that's okay. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, the, the, what they say in the Lion King, what do they call it? I don't know. You know, the, the, um, for me though, as a fan, uh, the consistency on those first four albums was more there. There were, uh, if, if you watch them in concert, they really, uh, to this day when they're, because they're playing together again, um, they go rely a lot on those first four albums in their show. It's a lot of those songs are still played. Well, you know, know it, was, it was great. It was a great time. And I will agree with you. Ronnie Dunn's one of the best, best singers I ever heard. And people, people need to know that, you know, we just, we just had click tracks. I mean, that first album we cut on tape, you know, we cut it on 24 track tape, you know, uh, and, and it was, you know, it was always that thing, you know, Brent Mason would play this brilliant solo and say, you know, and I know you've worked with Brent, Brent and go, oh, yeah. Hey, man, let me do one more, man. I think I can beat that. And, when it, and Don would have to go, oh, man, I, I don't know, man, that was so good, you know, and then, and, but you wouldn't have another track. So when the Sony 48 track digital came out, um, we had that for the second album. So we recorded the second album simultaneously on both machines. And at night after the sessions, we'd, uh, we'd, uh, um, play stump the band, stump the producer because those, you, you, you ever work at the sound shop, Don? I, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, the machines were in the back room and they had video cameras looked at the machines 
So Mike Bradley was eight, turned the cameras off and basically would slip the switches and we'd listen. And the 48 track, it was great because all of a sudden, you know, there were more tracks, more fun. And now well, I don't, want, I don't want to go off the subject of this because I'm, I'm still on this, but you just mentioned a legendary studio. We've, we're starting to become a little bit like Vegas when they're tearing down the legendary casinos. It makes me a little sad, Bruce, that, that some of our great studios and great landmarks in Nashville are just getting wiped off the map here in the last few years of our crazy Nash Vegas growth. You know, that's one thing that makes me a little sad. I'm not sure we can do anything. I mean, they built a huge condo down there. I just hope that Mike, Bradley, and Don, who own that building, I hope they made really good money on that and can live a healthy, happy life afterwards. I mean, you know, it's a studio. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know what to say. Yeah, it was legendary, but I mean legendary to people who knew about it. They did right. that Paul McCartney recorded there and Grand Funk. Junior's Farm, yep. Yep. But but you know, I mean I you know, anybody who doesn't live in Nashville, I mean I, I moved there in seventy eight and there were two high rises, the LMC Tower and the Sheraton with the restaurant on top of it. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, Raymond, do you, uh, when you were uh, playing music, you've been playing, uh, you know, your whole life also. Um, did you have a, like, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh area and there was like this, this ignorance to how great the musicians in, in Nashville were. I like, like country music. Like sometimes my friends who were into metal or, or hard rock would, would go, uh, you know, Hey, you know, that's country music is easy to play and stuff. Did you have that when you were growing up? Yeah. Well, I didn't start. I mean, yeah. Uh, not till I was in my twenties. Cause when I was in the army, I started, that's when I started playing keys and touring around Europe and rock bands. And, and, uh, uh, this is the show about Bruce, but because you brought that up, our booking agent one time booked, had, had a couple different bands, rock bands and country bands. Well, one particular show, they booked us as a country band and they booked the country band as a rock band. So we showed up and this guy walks out with a, you know, cowboy hat on big belt buckle and i said uh are you expecting a a rock band and he's like boy that ain't funny and there's hail bells everywhere so he literally looked at us and he said oh come on how difficult is it to play country music it's just a couple chords just get up there and kind of just pick it and uh uh yeah so that was indirectly an answer to your question but uh, we found out that night that uh Playing country music is uh, a hell of a lot more difficult than people think. It's a lot. I mean, no. Well, wise, I have a, po- I have a yeah. point to that question also is that that Raymond, that my friends in Pittsburgh uh, were acting like that too, and I just threw on Highway and Heartaches and uh, with Bruce <laughs> Bowden and and the fellas and Ricky Skaggs, and uh, I shut them all up. I go, if you guys can even get close to any of this, uh, then I'll I'll apologize and say that you're crazy. But it's um. Some of the most amazing players, including Bruce Bowden, are uh, are in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, making that music. And I think country music is is absolutely authentic, uh, uh, legitimate, awesome genre of music. Um, And I I do hope it continues. And uh, people like Bruce, you know. It's it's uh, it's just music. I mean, and music is coming back to songs again. I mean, the CMA Awards the other night had. There were, I saw seven steel guitars and I saw fiddle players, which I haven't seen in the past five years. And I mean, it's Luke Combs is, uh, is, uh, I think I might have to give him credit for yep. 
saving country music because he's, even though it rocks, I mean, it rocks hard. He's more on the Brooks and Dunn, you know, the next generation kind of thing. He's still, right. it's songs, man. It's got verses and courses. And as usual, I mean, we talked about this earlier. I don't understand the disconnect, you know, between record labels and radio and, and the fans. Um, I know for a fact that um, this hip hop, which I love to call it, you know, um, it's not necessarily selling tickets. It's not. You know, uh, you know um, there's a big rumor going around, you know, Florida Georgia Line broke up, so I guess I can talk about them. But there was a rumor that um, they tried to sell their last tour and, they, you know, the ticket sales were not looking good and the promoters weren't confident about it. So they, I mean, they weren't getting along, so they're going to break up anyway. But I mean, that, you know, it was a big party for a long time and it's just, it's going to be interesting. It may not shift, but I, I have a feeling that, um, you know, you know, Don, I know you can relate. I mean, I, I always, I was, I was talking to, um, you know, my daughter went to school with Tim and Faith's daughter and, um, and, they became really good friends. So when they graduated uh, from the master's program, Tim and Faith had a party out in, in uh, Palo Alto. And I'd never met Tim before, you know, really. I'd met him briefly, but we ended up talking. Uh, and I've known Faith forever. You know, I used to play in a band, yep. Gary Burr. And um, we talked for a long time, but we, we were all... We're talking about those songs that were drive off the road moments, you know, when you're driving down the road and the first time you heard That's My Job by Conway Twitty. Oh, I love that song. <laughs> or, the, or the song Remembers When by Tricia or I Can't Make You Love Me by Bonnie Ray, or, you know, it just just goes on. Or Tim McGraw had a, a bunch of amazing songs, even, you know, even Chesney. And we started talking and I realized that Reba, what, what is Reba and George Strait and Kenny Chesney and Tim McGraw and Linda Ronstadt and Frank Sinatra and Faith Hill, uh, Conway Twitty, George Jones all have in common? They're great interpreters of other people's music. Exactly. They didn't insist on writing their own songs. And they have all written, but, you know, they don't. Try Kenny that. Rogers. Kenny Rogers wrote a couple of great songs, but most of his hits were written by other people. That's, yeah, that, that's a great, a great artist. Uh, but, but I will have to get in there in the defense of the modern artist. It was a different era back then. They artists did not have to um, have to rely on uh, on songwriting to make a living or every little piece they had. They had record sales that they got a piece of, which are non-existent now. There's no record sales. Nobody buys records. Uh, or they had the road that was, and they had radio. But I mean, radio is is taking it's diminishing. Um, so it's a different era. But at the same, and now you know, every young artist, you know, has to be the writer on all their songs, and they have you know 14 writers on each tune, and you know, I obviously four or five, and. You know, it's just gotten really old and really boring, and yeah. uh, and it's good. And somebody else brought out some something to me the other day, which was really interesting because there's a thing going on. There's a little trend going on. I know it's a, this is like a, just a little personal thing, but um, I quit drinking about 
you know, a pretty good while ago now, about 10 months ago, 10, 11, 10, you know, and it was a choice, you know, and I didn't go to AA. I didn't do anything like that. I, I, I got into a, you know, I was reading a book called The Naked Mind, and um, it was just a scientific approach to alcohol addiction, you know, and, uh, and, you know, alcohol has been glorified in the music business. But I was talking to a friend of mine who also quit drinking because I, I, I know so many people getting close to my age that just are finally saying, I'm not going to drink anymore, man. It's just I, I want to live what's left of my life, uh, you know, healthy. Uh, right. You know, and 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 I know this book has helped a lot of people because all of a sudden you start realizing, hey, man, you know, here's what I'm doing uh, and here's what this causes, blah, blah, blah. Without it, I'm not trying to make a moral position, but I was talking to somebody about it yesterday and they were saying, talking about how much country music just praises the virtues of being shit faced all the time. Right. <laughs> you know, and I think this that. last decade had a lot of party drinking, let's get drunk songs. Oh, I mean, it's just crazy. I just heard something the other day. She says, I broke up, so I'm just going to be hammered down on Broadway or something like that. I forget the name of the song. It's one of these you know, countless young ladies that are trying to figure out how to be artists, you know, and, um, but she's on Sirius, the highway. And it's just, you're listening to this lyric and she's saying, I'm just going to go down and just get as shit faced as I can. And I don't remember this in pop music, really. You know, I, I, you know, I never remember. I mean, obviously people talk about, you know, talked about it, but I mean, Country music has been about nothing except party for the past five or six years. And I think, um, you know, it it hadn't made. Bruce, do you think I'm sorry to interrupt you for a second, but do you think it's um, I have a little theory on it that for the young, young demographic white audience, it kind of replaced country music, kind of replaced the party music of like hair metal of the eighties when it, you know, those kids were into Motley Crue and, and poison and all that stuff where they were getting, you know, drunk. And I, I remember kids used to go to those shows just to get hammered drunk. A lot of the songs were about partying drunk. Mm-hmm. The videos were all about, you know, the videos, every video was a party as a strip club. And there were people getting hammered, doing, you know, it was a whole theme going on there. And I think this generation's that same age demographic now have gravitated towards country as their, uh, you know, party, you know, music, you know, get, let's, okay. I, I want to go party and, get, and not think about things, get, get drunk. And no, I know I, I get it. I, I get no. it. I get off, got off on a tangent, you know, just, just, yeah. No, I'm no I don't you. mean that in a good way. I don't mean, I don't, I don't think that's a good thing. I'm agreeing with you, you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't, but I, I just think people, you know, I just think great songs again, man. I mean, you know, just listening to, uh, I heard a podcast with Bonnie Raitt the other day and she just, you know, she just talks about how she always listens to songs and all these finds all these writers and she finds good songs. And that's the way everybody that you and I have done, you know, when you and I used to write together and stuff, that was the whole deal. Let's write a song. Let's pitch it to somebody. And, you know, they listen to it, you know, because your publishers could walk in and people would get, you always hear about the artists, you know, they would have trash. They'd have grocery bags full of songs that they were taking on the road to listen to. And that- I think I think one thing gives you an edge too, Bruce, on your whole career that's made you special, in my opinion, 
is that not only you're a great um, still player, you look, you've also approached it from different angles. You've produced the music as a producer, also a songwriter. You've had songs recorded by other artists. And I think that uh, is not to be underrated that, that you, you've seen the other sides of the uh, approaching music. And I think that makes you the, you know, the playing when you're playing on someone else's stuff, in my opinion, that would, I would guess that would make it all even more like, you know, where like, you know, where to put, you know where to put that perfect steel part. You know where to, because you, you're, because you've been on the other end of it, uh, on the production part of it. I think a lot of that's one of the great things about Nashville musicians. I think they're all somewhat of producers, and not necessarily where they became record producers, but they they all get in the room together. And you've been there, but for the listener out there who, who hasn't seen it, I mean, it's a sight to behold. This is the last place on earth where six musicians will get in a room. And somebody will come and play a song, you know, on a, you know, uh, on a home demo. And these musicians sit around with the singer and they finesse this song and they turn it into a hit record. I mean, you know, there's a, um, you know, guys like Tom Bukovac and stuff, you know, who just is and, you know, I was listening to a, a video of his the other day where um, he was talking to Joey Moy, who's a very successful uh, producer here in Nashville. Um, and he was talking about um, the different musicians that Joey Moy uses on his um, sessions. And why does he use them? I mean, Bukovic. Do you know Tom? I, mean, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He played on your showcase. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know Tom. Yeah. Yeah. About years ago. But uh, when he was. Because of you, you put that together for me. But Tom has turned into being probably one of the most famous guitar players in the world. And he's obviously plays on everybody's records. And part of the reason is he is a he's a he's a, a cornucopia of rock music and pop music knowledge. You know, he knows, you know, all these iconic guitar parts from the old days. You know, all these different records. I mean, he started playing guitar when he was, you know, five years old and, you know, sat in his mother's pub while she, you know, had sat there all day and listened to jukebox and figured out tunes. Um, that's a way so many of these musicians are. And, I, and it was really cool listening to, to Joey Moy. And he said, what do you like about Dave Cohen, uh, who's a keyboard player? He's probably one of the most successful keyboard players in town right now. And Joey said, well, Cohen knows has every classic keyboard sound known to man in his fingertips but what else he can do is he can pull out that sound and he can play you the iconic record that that sound was used on <laughs> you know wow wow and i'm going you know that's deep knowledge and that's what makes the genius of these session players in this town because you know all this stuff Bruce, you Go ahead. I'm sorry, Bruce. Bruce, you you um, produced a few sides for me, and they were they came out. I was very proud of that. And for example, I don't know if I ever told you this, but um, there was one song that I, I I wrote on there, co-wrote on there of one of those things we did. And Byron Gallimore, I remember he had he was interested in the song for Tim, uh, and he oh. said he said that that uh, I can't beat that that recording. A production on that. I'm like, uh, well, okay. there you go. I said, well, I mean, that's from Byron Gallimore in the day. And it's like, I said, well, Bruce Bouton produced that for me. So it's like, 
Uh, that's another, I think, pretty pretty strong producer right there, giving you a compliment on that. I don't know if I ever well, told you that or not. I appreciate it. I was, you know, it's it's interesting. I looking back, uh, you know, the, the problem. And I, I was talking to a really famous film editor last night about all this. About we actually started talking about aging out of the business because he and I are about the same age, and he's he's rich now, but he just moved here from from Hollywood. And uh, but he said, "Yeah, I wanted to be a producer or a director, but I had to make a living." And he said, because if you wanted to be a producer or a director in Hollywood, you had to have money because if you were going to do that, you couldn't do other jobs. You know, you had to just. And, and that was the same thing as being a producer in Nashville, especially in the 90s. Um, if you if you hung your production shingle out, suddenly your session career was over, you know, because, you know, a record takes four weeks to make. And so that's four weeks then you can't take sessions and then you don't take sessions for four weeks and your phone stops. So I had opportunities to uh, um, produce records after I I produced the Merle Haggard tribute on Arista. Um, You know, I had labels that would call me, but they'd say, well, who else are you talking to? And they'd mention somebody and I'd go, Oh shoot. I, I work for them. Um, If I go compete for that production, thing, you know, and I have to make a living. I have to feed my kids. So I didn't, I didn't jump off into the production world. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I produced a lot of records, custom records for people and stuff like that, you know? And, um, well, I, I just think like you're one of those guys that everything you put your mind to, you've been successful and you've done a great job, including songwriting also. And I, I, I know everything. Uh, you're one of those guys I get excited for when I find out you're going to be on something that I'm doing. And also, I'm going to go back to the thing, Raymond. And I think you're doing amazing work with what you're doing. Your new song just come out. And uh, Bruce, you're, you. you're playing as great as ever. And I feel like I'm singing as great as ever and writing the best songs of my life. So I, I don't think we're old at all, Bruce. I think we're kicking butt. Well, we're, we're having fun. I just, you know. I Mark, just... now it's another story. Mark, it's another story. Yeah, Mark. Mark. What, what, what song? What song do you have out? Uh, no, I appreciate that, Bruce. Uh, uh, I'm in a band uh, called Grieve the Astronaut. It's we're kind of a Pink Floyd meets Toto kind of a band, oh, wow. and uh, we just really we just released a song called Darkness today. Wow! So yeah, I appreciate you asking about that. Hey, and while I've got you, thank you again. I appreciate that. It's cool having a big artist ask ask that. I got a question for you. This is a very personal question. So I'm I'm listening to everything you're saying, and I hear the passion and the history and the story. And I'm just sitting there shaking my head, going, "Oh my God, yes, that's awesome!" Is what would your advice be? Because you know, there's a kid somewhere. There's a kid somewhere going. I want to go to Nashville. I want to be a session player. We all, all of us here, we know that there's only really a handful, maybe ten, maybe a dozen, fifteen of each type of player in Nashville that really gets that shot. What would your advice be for that that young artist coming up that wants to be a session player in today's in today's world? I don't know, because I mentor a couple young steel players and it's like I like to you know, going back to what I said, I was just so lucky. I feel like I won the lottery because when I started doing sessions, you know, especially, you know, and not not including the Ricky Skagg stuff that I did in the early eighties, but when I started working and staying in town in the late 80s and stuff, there were so many demos going on that 
I could just do demos and make enough of a living doing demos. And I learned my craft. It was like arm team. Now, it was sometimes it was grueling in the sense that you had to play a lot of bad songs and sometimes you were out of tune, couldn't tune up and all. But sometimes, I, you know, I cut 15 or 20 songs a day and you had to cut them within 25 minutes. You had 25 minutes a song. Jesus. Because uh, the session was three hours. Or is that 25 minutes? Or 30, on my math. Maybe it's 35 minutes a song. Well, I can yeah, already... 30, 30, 35 minutes a song to cut five songs in a demo session. Sometimes people want to cut seven or eight in a demo session. And we don't so have you, that no more. We don't have that anymore. So that's the bummer. So I would tell a young guy, I would say, man, study. Study the music. Study the... Study... The, you know, the songs, let's go back and listen to the old guys. If you're sitting there and you're, you're coming to town going, um, man, I, I, you know, I love James Mitchell's guitar plan. Uh, you know, I want to, I'm, I'm just learning everything James Mitchell did. Well, go back and learn everything James Mitchell learned. Learn back and go back and learn the Brent Mason ah. things. Go back before that and listen to Jerry Reed. Go back before that and listen to Chuck Berry. I mean, um, it's, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I, I'm in my, I, I get spiritual about it because everything fell into place for me. Um, you know, I can tell you everything that caused the next thing to happen. Cause and effect. But there were also so many other opportunities. And I think the biggest thing that happened back then was there was a lot of money because everybody was buying records. And that's the horrible elephant in the room that until we get until we get some you know equity in the streaming business and in the performance rights business you know it's it's going to be it's going to get tougher and tougher for um for people to make a living uh you know sitting in a studio all day um, well, I, I think that believe it or not bruce i what i took from what you just said is actually really good because you could hear the passion in your voice and you know for these for the, the young guys coming up in, the, in this industry whether you want to be a session player or not um you better love it man you better be in it because it's you know because it's running through your veins and you, know, you wake up thinking about it go to bed thinking about it because if not it you know i've seen it eat eat and chew up so many artists really it can be it can be sad so a, a dose of reality is good it's a disease man i used to i, I always <laughs> I used to laugh back in that we have a we have an interesting phenomena that's happened. Um, there's a, kind of a school called Belmont University, and they came upon the brilliant idea of actually having a music business degree. So, and then MTSU did it. And now a lot of universities do it across the the country, and Belmont's turned into quite an amazing thing. I mean, they when it first started out, you know, they didn't. It was they didn't have a lot of money, but they've now it's it's world class studios, all this kind of stuff. But the thing is, these schools are graduating hundreds and hundreds of people every year, and there aren't hundreds and hundreds of jobs. Yeah, where do they go after all that? And, and still, at the end of the day, it's still the same kind of deal with the music business. It's kind of a little X factor. You got to sort of come in and vibe, and you got to kind of fall into the right group, you know. Um, and you kind of rise with the people you came in with. I mean, you know, um, you know, I, I Paul Franklin told me that a long time ago because I was I was 
kind of idiotic a lot of times. I used to walk up to producers and say, hey, man, you know, you want to hire me on your session? And I didn't realize how irritating that was to a producer until I started producing. And people would come up and say, hey, man, how come you haven't hired me on your sessions? You know, and I'm, you don't want to say, well, because I don't think you're the right guy for the job <laughs> or I like this other guy better. But Paul Franken sat me down one day and said, hey, man, you rise with the people you came in with. Right. You know, and and that's what happens. I mean, it's like. Um, so you recommend Bruce uh, like like I, I've met some uh, musicians that seriously said, well, I can't I can't play uh, on the road because if I play out out with a band, then, then I won't be considered a, uh, a studio guy. And I, I want to tell them, like, a lot of studio guys started out playing with an artist, Chris Lusinger with uh, Crystal Gale. Uh, you know, like, it leads to, you know, them getting to play on that artist's record, and then it leads to other opportunities. You know, it's all connected. Yeah. You just got to figure it out. If the artist sits there and says, hey, I'll use you on my record if you tour with me, and you haven't played on any records, I'd probably take the tour. Um... I guess it's what you need, but I mean, you know, you've got to, people hear you, people try you. I mean, there's a drummer that's playing on Monday nights at the underdog over here who's 35, 36 years old, and he's playing with a, this incredible guitar player named Guthrie Trout and um, Tim Marks. It's just a trio, but this is one of the most amazing drummers I've seen in a long time. And um, I think people are going to, you know, keep seeing them. But once again, it's a matter if you get in that studio that day, as you know, Don, and it's whether you you bring something to the table and whether you don't get in the way and whether you don't make somebody feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, I'm still, you know, I mean, I still have situations where I go in and it just doesn't vibe with the engineer or the or somebody, you know whatever the gig, gig is, you know, and I might work one day, it might be a good day, but I don't get called back, you know, or maybe, you know, you never know. But, well, I've got, I've got uh, two, uh, two more questions for you. And one of them is that you've worked with some of the biggest artists in the history of music, not just country music, the history of music, uh, Neil Diamond, Kenny Rogers, Shania Twain, Garth Brooks. Do, is there an it factor when they walk in the studio or is there something there or is it the hit records make them have an it factor or, or is there something special you've seen with like some of these absolute legends who have sold over a hundred million records? Well, let's, uh, let's take those, uh, Neil Diamond. I, I was just floored that I got, uh, even call for the session that would Bob Gaudio called me. He was, uh, wrote all the big hits for the four seasons and produced, uh, you don't send me flowers anymore for Neil Diamond and Barbara. Right. So Neil asked him to do his country records. So he called me for the session. I think when Neil rocked in the room, it was, it was just hard to describe. I mean, because, <laughs> because he was this amazing legendary artist. Yet he was able to come in and just be so down to earth and so kind and so easy. And I, I mean, I remember we worked at RCA um, Studio A and they didn't have a, a lounge. So he <laughs> sent his assistant down to Bradford's and, and bought a living room set, coffee tables and everybody and set up a lounge in the back corner. So we'd be 
we'd be cutting and you'd look over and you'd see Dolly Parton or Chet Atkins or somebody all coming in. And, you know, he went and bought cigars for everybody to, you know, I didn't smoke, but I mean, for every, all the band members, anybody who wanted cigars and great catering. And it just, it was the best job at recording gig I ever had because we worked for two weeks and it was easy. And Kenny Rogers, you know, I, I worked with Kenny Rogers. Uh, the first tour I ever did was with Dottie West and Kenny Rogers. Wow. I did not know that, Bruce. Yeah. And it was just by accident. And we won't waste so much time how I got into it. But for three months, I did that tour. And that was in 1979. And um, yeah, Kenny was bigger than life. Kenny was huge. And you got to keep in mind, for me, he had to be bigger in life because when I was a kid, I heard I just walked in to see what condition my condition, <laughs> you know, and uh, he was great. I mean, um, Shania was just uh, I don't know if I was more overwhelmed with Mutt Lang or Shania when I worked with her. She was uh, she was a pretty big star by then, but she was really nice. She was, uh, you know, they were great. I mean, I think I'd be overwhelmed if um if I was ever in the room with Paul McCartney, you know, um, you know, I got to, I've, I've been around some, some big artists. I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, Garth is bigger than life somehow, but I've known Garth since, since the beginning, you know, since the beginning. He's, He's a special guy though. It's, uh, I've never seen anything like it, you know? Um, but a lot of these guys that I worked with, I started out when they were starting out. Right. And um, trying to remember anybody that I just, you know, was totally well, is there, has it happened in your career, Bruce, or is it uh, or has it already happened or, or maybe it hasn't happened yet? There's there's an ultimate person, ultimate musician that that you're that maybe he gave you a, the big thumbs up and heard your playing and, and walked in on something and said, man, that's awesome. That was that you, you hold it to highest esteem. Is anybody out there? Is it? I've got a lot of guys, but some one of them just called me a little while ago, and I, I need to call him back in a minute. But Steve Gibson was uh, um, really nice to me when I moved to town, and um, and he got me on a few things. Uh, I got a call from somebody the other day asking me what guitar I used on a Randy Travis record, and I'd forgotten I played on that record, and it, <laughs> it was it was because of Steve Gibson. You know, um, he got me on some stuff. I think. Uh, I never really got to work for Tony Brown. He always used Paul Franklin. Right. But um, <clears throat> Tony was really cool. He'd let me hang out at the recording sessions and watch. So I got to watch that first Steve Earle record being made. And I got to watch Patty Loveless's first album being made. Parts of it, you know. And I mean, Reggie Young, I mean, who I never worked with very much. Just there's so many musicians that were just kind to me and would answer my questions. Um but no, I don't think, um, I think, you know, I got more of my leg up from, you know, producers that just, um, they got me on sessions. But, um, you know, there's a guy, a young producer I'm working with right now who I'm, I'm really placing my money on is a guy named Brandon Hood. Um, you know, um, Dan Huff was really good to me when he moved back. Oh, yeah. You know, I worked with Dan on some projects, but that was a case where I went on the road with Reba. And had to miss about three or four sessions that Dan called me for. So, you know, I quit working for him. But I mean, you know, he's he's amazing producer. And Brandon is kind of his protege. 
and they worked together on some stuff. And, and Brandon, I don't know, you know, I'm just thrilled that he's calling me. I always tell people that he's revived my career, you know. So well, I, mean, I you go go around every go to the grocery store, go to a country line dance uh, night at the Wild Horse, go anywhere, and you're going to hear Bruce Bowden music uh, everywhere you go in the world. And if you want to have fun, put together a little Spotify. Um, um, I'm doing the streaming here. We're not making no money if you do this, but put together the Spotify list of everything Bruce played on, and you'll have one of the greatest lists of hit songs in the great uh, history of country music that you could ever put together. That's, that's it. guys, uh, Raymond and Mark, the, the, Bruce has played on so many of, of your favorite and everyone's favorite music. And the steel guitar that he laid down on those records are a big part of those uh, magic of those records. It's so funny. You just you're talking about steel guitar, and I'm, I'm my phone's sitting in front of me, and all of a sudden Lloyd Green just showed up on my screen. Yeah, I don't know if you all know who Lloyd Green was, but probably the most for many years the most recorded steel player in history. He he started out in the '60s and and uh, played on Don Williams records, played on Paul McCartney's records. He's 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 86 years old, 86 years young, I should say. Yep. And one of the last remaining A-team guys. Yeah, so he he was one of my mentors and still is. That's awesome. See, that's what I'm talking about. And he's still out there doing it, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's calling me to tell me he's decided to play again. But the last time I talked to him, he said he wasn't playing. Um, well, your but, plan's as great as ever. Well, you know, we'll see if it matters. You know, we'll see, see what happens in the future with music. Now, I mean, I hope that... Steel guitar is not going to die, um, you know, and, and I would like to, you know, it's just, as I said, it's a different world, man. I mean, you don't even hear guitar solos on records, you know, not, I mean, you hear the same kind of rock solo, but I mean, like, I don't know. We'll see. It'll, it's. It'll, they need to make the steel guitar lighter, though. It's a heavy instrument. Well, that's the problem. I mean, it's not an instrument you can take take to bed with you in practice or like I'm doing right now. I've got, I've got a Telecaster in my hand and I'm just noodling while I'm talking to you all just to, you know, but it's like, yeah, steel is a, it, steel's a destination. Well, I don't know. You, I'm just saying, I'm going to call out and say that Bruce is just being lazy because I take my nine, my, uh, my baby grand to bed with me all the time. <laughs> a hell of a john at the end of the night but you must be a really strong man (laughs) i have mark i have mark do it for me Uh, well hey uh um, how can people find out i mean mean, we're we're sitting there talking about is there one place people can go to find out everything about you uh you know i've got i think there's this thing called uh google that um (laughs) uh, all all music Uh, but if you go to, uh, if you Google my name, I I think, I think I have a website still, but you know, websites seem to be obsolete, but, um, I've got a Wikipedia and, um, and I, there's a couple of different bios on there and, uh, I've got an instruction method that I do with modern music master. Right. Yes. Same company that, uh, that, uh, Paul Franklin's doing his university with, but, you know, I teach, neo-traditional steel i teach all my solos from the 80s you know not all of them but i teach you know shameless and down to my last broken heart stuff and then i've got a lap steel course 
And then I put out a course years ago in the 80s called Learn to Play Pedal Steel. And you can probably find an image of that and see me with what we lovingly refer to as a skullet. I had uh, I had long hair and, and no hair on top. And, um, <laughs> you know, so it was I can't get rid of that picture. But, yeah, I mean, I'm. Um, Is there a possible Bruce Bowden book in the future? Ah, uh, you know, it would be pretty awesome. Yeah, I just I'd, I'd have to decide that I wasn't going to work in this town anymore if I was going to write the book. Uh, <laughs> so if you tell all, love yeah. it. No, it's it's wild, man. I mean, I've been here forty four years, and it's it's uh, uh, it's kind of you know because everybody you know everybody that's famous now they're all in their twenties. You know, it's like you know it's just interesting. You know, well. I don't think I think the age is a number, especially when it comes to someone with your talent. And uh, like I said, I'm proud of all the work we're all here doing. And um, we, uh, I hope to keep working with you, Bruce, in the future, man. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Very well, much. and I can't I can't thank you all enough for for having me and taking the time for this. It's a great honor. Good success with the podcast. It needs to be done, man. There's a whole bunch of people to talk to. Yes, sir. Thank yes, you, sir. Good yeah, thank you so much, man. Great words. Thanks for the real talk, my brother. Cool.
am Brittany from Limberlost, and you're listening to Seattle Radio.